Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, for those of you who are here, we're going to go ahead and start. Forgive me, I'm getting my lunch in the background. This is a brown bag conversation. Uh, I will find someplace quiet to sit. All right. Uh, Still waiting for people to join us. And of course, this call will be edited and cleaned up and reposted for educational purposes on the conference call website and should be subscribable via iTunes or an RSS feed. Hey, Robert, it sounds pretty uh, lively where you are. Yeah. So um, did you just join the call? What's that? Did you just join the call? I've been on just for a couple minutes. I listened to your hello there, and uh, I've just been waiting on you. Here we are. Okay. So we're already recording. It started automatically when I uh, logged in. Awesome. Is it just you and I right now? Um, yep. Um, I've got one other person who said that they're planning to try and join us, and then whoever else joins the call. Okay, cool. Well, let's just uh, let's just you and I jump into it and see how we do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to connect to this public Wi-Fi while I'm sitting here. So I did mention, yes, this is a brown bag, so I am eating. <laughs> Perfect. As well, you should be like that. I'll be like there's no more there. What's that? I have, I have appointment. I have an appointment right after this, so I don't, okay. I don't get to eat. Not a problem. Okay. All right. So, the official introduction to this integral theory conference call on a Friday. Current time is uh, 12.06 p.m. in Arizona. Um, this is a monthly conference call that is hosted by the Silovia School of... I can't even remember the rest of it. Go ahead. What is it called? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the monthly conference call for the Silovia School for the Development of Consciousness, Purpose, and Transformation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, our our goal in this is to kind of expand our understanding and information about integral theory, integral practice, integral psychotherapy, um, and how it can really be applied in the profession in a way that may uh, 
should absolutely make sense to most practitioners, but also expand the toolbox for those practitioners to be even more effective. Mm -hmm. um, this is hosted uh, through Cylogia, through uh, but the, the voice of Cylogia is Wesley Fruquay. I can never say your name, so forgive me for butchering it. Um, he's <laughs> he did pretty good. He's a, been a practitioner of integral theory and practice for longer than I can remember, with lots of experience in the field, learning all the different techniques and skills, and actually hosts a regular face-to-face um, -face training system. Uh, so, Wesley, why don't you tell us real quick about what it is that you host outside the phone call before we get into our topics. Yeah, great. Thanks, Robert. So, uh, for the last, uh, gosh, going on a Ten, almost 11 years now um, at the community college here in Arizona, we've been teaching integral theory to undergraduate students um, and teaching a course on consciousness theory, the psychology of consciousness, and also mature ego development. And uh, that was in the incubation stages for quite some time. Very, very popular class, incredibly well received on campuses. And it just finally grew to the point where um, to expand the content of the course and to get into more uh, embodied direct experience work, we moved it away from the college just recently in the last year. And so we've gone off on our own and moved away from being connected to an actual uh, college course and created the, the Silogia School for the, con for the development of consciousness, purpose, and transformation. Um, Silogia is uh, an umbrella I created for myself to uh, penetrate into the field that would be even beyond transpersonal psychology. So something um, that I call psycho-spiritual type work. Um, the Psychology School itself uh, is deeply involved and uses the, the fundamental principles and theory of integral philosophy. Um, we study contemplative techniques. Uh, we also work with charge reduction therapeutic modalities to help people get over setbacks, stress, um, strife, even trauma healing, and also uh, creation of new identities, self-actualized identities, and uh, deep structure building uh, for them to progress into uh, more actualized states of actually being in the world. So those are some processes that we practice. And uh, our group meets weekly on Mondays uh, for half a year. And we also run public workshops that we uh, set up for the public to attend uh, on the third Saturday of every month. And our group is just dedicated to depth. They're dedicated to transformation. They're dedicated to human potential work. And uh, yeah, so there's a little bit about the Psychology School and, and what we're involved in with, with doing. Uh, the population of our group ranges anywhere from, I think our youngest participant is 19, and I think our oldest is um, 54. Uh, so it's a broad, eclectic, diverse range of individuals. Some are in college, some have graduated. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a really unique group of people, and they are all dedicated to deep service. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that overview. Um, I want to also remind uh, listeners that um, in the previous call history for our brown bag are some podcasts that you've done that really highlight the integral theory from, well, uh, everywhere from an introduction through the components that make up the integral theory. So anyone who wants to go back historically, 
Uh, this call is hosted by TalkShoe. And if you go to TalkShoe's website, put in the call ID, which is the number you needed to get into this call, um, which is, I think, 140964. Then do call ID search. It'll take you back to our host page. And you can see our historical record going back to the beginning of the year. And um, the calls that are in there are reformatted and have more like really nice podcasts that Wesley has uh, edited and put together for us. Supervise us a really good overview for some of the stuff we'll talk about going forward. Uh, so if you have any questions about that sort of thing, we can hit on them. But I definitely encourage anyone to go back and listen to those podcasts. So now that we've kind of done an introduction, uh, a formal introduction of Wesley and Cylogia, um Today's topic, we wanted to kind of hit on kind of assessing somebody from an integral perspective. So using the four quadrant theory to make sure we're hitting on both the subjective and objective, individual and collective um, experiences of a person's life to kind of really surmise where they're having difficulties and the opportunities for the greatest growth. Um, Wesley, why don't you give us a real brief uh, review of how that applies um, from the aqua model? Yeah, so I think it's worth saying that particularly in psychotherapy, probably more than any other field, um, psychotherapists are confronted with the full complexity of the human condition. There are biographical issues, there are genetic issues, there are cultural, social, interpersonal, intrapersonal issues that come into play when we are working and interacting with clients. And of course, they all these things yield unpredictable results uh, when we're assessing, when we're treating, and when we're just even on, a, on an intake with a, with a client. So there's this huge array of client variables, which may come from their age range. You know, we could be working with people anywhere from four to 85, whether or not they are male or female, whether they are transgender, heterosexual, gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, whether they're Euro-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, African-American, Native American, the list would just go on. Are they wealthy? Are they middle class? Are they homeless? Um, do they have pre-existing conditions? Do they have physical conditions? Do they have pre-existing uh, psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder? Uh, are they on medication? Uh, what is their social affiliations? Uh, what is their political uh, ideologies? What are their religious ideologies? Are they more extroverted or introverted? Are they more introspective or more concrete? It, the list is just enormous for the types of people that we have to deal with. And so humans are incredibly complex. And to make any kind of workable meaning out of it, we have to respond with empathy and we have to respond with openness to the entire condition as people show up. So um, for a long time, of course, psychology has struggled with its own identity and how it seeks to approach this multivaried complexity within the human condition. And of course, there's been many schools of thought over the last 120 years, 130 years almost, um, of psychology's history of whether or not we take a psychoanalytic approach or a behaviorist approach or in a, in a more modern sense, cognitive behavioral approach in the super modern uh, contemporary sense, the neurobiological model. How do we come to a place where we can actually help people with this varied, complex system that they, they present for us to help them sort through? 
Um, around the 1970s, of course, we started adopting a more eclectic view, and we were able to uh, take orientations that brought the best of each types of practices. And that was a, an incredibly healthy step forward. Um, but it worked in kind of a patchwork fashion. And sometimes the core issues were not addressed um, or certain key components to the approach were swept aside. Um, so where eclecticism was a marvelous step forward, it really didn't quite fit um, what we needed it to do in terms of its holistic uh, embrace of what we're working with. So integral psychotherapy, I think, and I think uh, is worth sharing here today, represents this next integrated stage in therapeutic orientation. So this work, of course, would be grounded with the theoretical psychologist and philosopher Ken Wilber's work, um, and integral psychotherapy organizes key insights, interventions uh, from a wide range of pharmacological, psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, humanistic, existential, feminist, multicultural, somatic, transpersonal approaches to psychotherapy. So it doesn't just melt these things into one uh, grand unifying common factor, but it's really a meta-theoretical perspective. So um, it gives general guidelines as to when each of these therapies would be most appropriate for use with a client and allows each approach to retain its particular individual flavor, its utility, and its usefulness. Um, so it's really sort of a, a meta-theory that allows us for a complete systems of therapy and approach. And uh, what it allows us then as practitioners is the ability to have a comprehensive, multi-perspectival approach that we can apply with confidence, that will strengthen client work, deepen multicultural and even multi-developmental spiritual understandings, and uh, improve interactions between therapist and client. Thank you for that. That was uh, very, very informative. There's one thing that I that I heard that stand out of there. As a professional, a lot of this makes a lot of sense. Um, for those who don't really know me, and I mean, I didn't introduce myself. My name is Robert Goldenbeck. I'm a therapist in Tucson, Arizona, um, a professional in his own right in the field. And so it's a, it's always intriguing to hear a lot of the same thing over and over again. And as professionals, we are trained that a lot of what we hear is going to be the same thing. It's just a matter of learning the right language so that we're all on the same page. And one thing I've experienced with integral theory and integral psychotherapy is that it's kind of got its own language to it. And there's one piece in that in this uh, um, uh, explanation and overview that you gave that may not sound, uh, may not uh, register with a lot of therapists or, or psychiatrists or professionals. And that is you had used the term um, working with the client where how they show up. And I'm wondering if you might kind of give us a little uh, a brief uh, definition of how you mean that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so one of, the, one of the fundamental tenets to the work that I personally do um, and things that we share with other practitioners who are interested in integral approaches 
is there seems to be a developmental hierarchy from waking up to growing up to then showing up. And uh, we mean this as a healthy ascension into deeper embrace of compassion and deeper complexity uh, with the ability to show up in a more embodied way. So um, waking up is exactly like it sounds. You're waking up to new truth. You're waking up to new reality. You're waking up to new perspective. Um, we can have a little bit of a discussion later about perspectives and drill down deeper into that if you want. Growing up is sort of the, the casting period, the, the temperament period where things are structured, they're bolstered, they're solidified, um, they're given strength, they're given a, a certain kind of hardiness, uh, which the only uh, way to do this, of course, is through time. Um, and then showing up is that ability to actually be in the world, plugged into your deepest service, and that service, of course, is to the greater multitude. And showing up is the actual embodiment of the waking up and growing up developmental uh, ascension. So by showing up, of course, uh, what we're talking about is that ability to show up in the world stand in your purpose, be giving of your deepest service to others, and live in an embodied, actualized way so that you're not visiting states of goodness or states of compassion or states of service, but actually able to live in a way in which these qualities are reflected in your daily life and how you present yourself to the world. Um, and then just a little bit of a side mention, somewhere in there, in between either waking up and growing up or in between growing up and showing up. Sometimes we have to include what we call cleaning up, uh, which is really going back and integrating shadow material and cleaning up any old wounds or traumas or hang-ups or anything that could disrupt the natural flow of some of these actualized developments. Thank you so much again. <clears throat> so... Now we're going to move away from the introduction to some of these overviews. Let's go into um, kind of the meat of our conversation today. Um, in Dr. Mark Foreman, I do believe he's a PhD doctor in, in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Mark Foreman's book, A Guide to Integral Psychotherapy, he has a, a section where we talk about the integral assessment, so different ways in which to elicit this type of information from somebody to really get that overview. Um, he asks in his book, um, how does one do the integral assessment? And um, one thing that is very, very clear in our profession is that uh, structured interviews are kind of the way to go as a uh, master's level therapist. As maybe a psychiatrist, the uh, self-disclosure form, or to have somebody else do a written assessment type work um, becomes very pertinent because uh, most psychiatrists that I have had the benefit of working with are very time limited. So to sit down and have an hour or two hour long conversation with a patient while they're trying to um, assess the needs and medicinal and, and upper right issues of the client becomes rather burdensome given the financial constraints imposed by insurance or, or time. So, but in Dr. Foreman's book, he talks about um, being able to do it both ways. Um, as a master's level therapist, I can have three or four days to do this assessment to really explore all four quadrants, their, their subjective emotional experiences, their physiological and somatic issues, their cultural context, and then there are also social limitations. Um, 
some of the stuff they go over when he talks about in here is, you know, what kind of questions to ask. Um, so let's start with the upper left-hand quadrant, which is the subjective individual quadrant. This is the section where we really look at, you know, the general mood, the emotions, decision-making, cognition. Um, so, Wesley, in your experience working with folks, um, what kind of questions do you really use in order to assess the subjective individual experience of their lives? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things that I make a point to do when I'm working with individuals is I let them know ahead of time that we're going to have very long, slow conversations. Um, my sessions now sometimes are up to two hours long. I, I book out chunks of time, um, especially for intake uh, sessions and this sort of thing. Because to get into the root of the deep subjective, I think it takes time. And so you really are asking questions about an individual's interior experience. Um, you wanted to be asking them subjective questions about uh, how they see the world, how they see themselves, how they see themselves fitting into that world. What is their relationship with self? Do they know the fundamental reality of who am I? What is another? What is life? What is love? Um, and even though those sound very much like existential questions, they are also, at least from an integral approach, uh, deeply rooted into our fundamental identities. And a lot of times we carry charge around certain notions like that. So we're looking for when people get kind of hung up in being able to answer a question like that. And uh, so we're really wanting to get to know the deep inner subjective relationship of that person to themselves, how they know themselves. So uh, you want to add to that or, or uh, comment on, on how you also inquire in that particular realm? And the tables turn. So um, we're, uh, part of the work that we do is, you know, we definitely ask very similar questions. And it usually starts off with how do you feel today? You know, it's uh -huh. just trying to get that initial assessment of their mood. And um, just, you know, it's, it's really what is hitting today, what's here in this moment, because until we can get past what's the distraction, we can't get into the subjective. You know, we can't get into those deeper realms with them unless they're clear enough with whatever the current stresses are. Once we get past that point, I really like to start in with, um, you know, what is the, until, uh, like a little bit of a, history, the psychosocial history a little bit, but specifically the psychohistory, you know, tell me about some of the memories that stand out related to what brought you in, what are you working on, and what brought you here. So we get an assessment of historical piece and their kind of a indirect overview of their interpretation of their past. So if they're coming in because they're having issues with uh, financial problems, and not being able to pay their bills, you know, that, that's very much a, a lower right-hand quadrant issue. But when we ask them about, you know, what kind of experiences you had with this in the past, what they do is they talk about, well, you know, mom's really bad with money, my dad stole from me, my friends always borrowed from me. And what happens is it opens up a door to understanding their subjective experience of that, of what happens when somebody asks to borrow money, you know, what kind of reaction do you have? And they start to explain, well, I get annoyed, I get frustrated, you know, everybody's always asking me for these things. 
and they really start to bring that up in that direction. So then what happens next is I'll push it a little bit farther in understanding how their behavior, which is their upper right reaction, to their emotional response comes out, and that will lead us in the direction of upper right. Now, something you had brought up um, in your discussion is something I want to hit on a little bit here. You had said that the questions you were asking sound a little more existential and mm-hmm. talking about the individual identity. And I'm wondering if we might bridge the uh, bridge the two ideas together because um, to me it seems very clear that an existential identity is very much a part of the individual identity, and yet we still treat them separately in the profession. That an existential idea is about the uh, really high Maslow's need of self-fulfillment but it also Mm -hmm. comes across in the general population of people I've worked with that they see it more as just a purely spiritual issue. And so Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we might be able to bring these two ideas a little closer together as far as making sure that everyone's on the same page about how we might use these terms in the general theme of applying integral theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I think uh, the way I understand the word existential is not to talk about it in any kind of way in which it refers to being mystical or somehow spooky knowledge of something, but literally going back to its root word, which is existence. And these are questions of existence and certainly something that we're all uh, sharing in our human experience is we exist and we're not often sure why we exist or how we plug in. And so existential questions to me are questions of existence. and so we were interested in that. How does this person relate to their own existence? Do, do, are they in touch and do they understand who they are? Do they understand what they are? Do they understand uh, what is another or what is love or what is life? Or even sometimes, uh, what, is, what is God? What is, what, is, uh, what is of ultimate concern? So I think they're really questions of existence, of being. And uh, I guess to use a very fancy term, those, those would be ontological questions. <laughs> so how does that bridge to everyday life? Well, we're, we're all everyday human beings. And so I think we are all somehow connected to, you know, why is it that all this is going on and why am I here? What does it mean? Again, thank you so much for that. I realized in my explanation I was talking about upper right, upper left, lower right. Um, and we'll get into those right now. What we're talking about the subjective individual quadrant um, in the idea that uh, the four quadrant model, for those of you who are familiar with it, if you're not, I think it's go back to uh, the conversation number three. Um, it'll talk about sure. quadrants a little bit more. So we're looking at is in the subjective individual quadrant is considered upper left. So when you hear me talking yeah. about upper left or upper right, um, that's where we're going with that. And I don't mean to confuse yeah. anybody. And, and the top is part right of now. our. Yeah, it's part of our common topic, language that we use. Go ahead. Yeah, and for the topic right now, it might be just safe to say that what we're saying is what is someone's sense of self and how does he or she experience or construct their reality with their thoughts and emotions? That's probably the simplest way to say it. It's their interior experience that we're talking about at the moment. Absolutely. So thank you so much for that. Um, I always like to move clockwise. So um, I'm going to move over to upper right, which is the objective individual quadrant. So the upper right really seems to focus on, um, at least in Dr. Foreman's book, focuses on uh, like family history, uh, sleeping patterns, facts of behavior, uh, facts of uh, uh, context, facts of biology, 
maybe facts of topology, typology and or uh, topography, talking about maps, like geolocation, where do you live, you know, what environment do you live in, things that can have an impact on the subjective experience through an objective lens. He asked questions mm -hmm. about medications. He talks about sleeping patterns, quality of sleep, um, risk of a TBI or head injury. He talks about diet, exercise, drugs and alcohol. So, Wesley, just like I asked you in the upper left quadrant question, what kind of questions do you ask through your practice as far as assessing the upper right or the objective individual okay. experience? Yeah, cool. So in the upper left that we just talked about, I see that as psychological patterns that I'm looking for and inquiring about. And I'm looking for those in terms of images, thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. Um, in the upper right, I'm looking at the client's behavioral patterns. I want to know how they're acting in the world. Um, I might be interested in what their generic inherent, their, excuse me, <laughs> generic, excuse me, their genetic inheritances are. Uh, is, there, is there any family history of anything that we want to know about that might be uh, affecting their, their particular experience? Um, their physiology, their neurological condition. You mentioned diet, uh, exercise, medications they might be on, any types of uh, substance abuse or general predispositions to certain, uh, certain qualities. So do they have a family history of mental illness? Uh, what medications are they taking? What's the sleeping pattern? Uh, what's the quality of the sleep? What type of environmental stressors might they be uh, potentially impacted by? Have they had any kind of injuries? Uh, diet is another really good one to ask about. Do they have any current form of exercise? Uh, what's their substance usage like? And then uh, another one that I'm personally always interested in is what are their daily routines? Uh, how do they structure their day? What, do, what are their habitual patterns like? How do they find themselves uh, in the work-play balance? Um, how are they able to stay on task and then what brings them off task and these sorts of things. So those are some of the, the items that I'm particularly interested in uh, when I work with people. Want to add to that? Yeah, so um, I was listening to all that and it's like this section, this quadrant is a, a very, very big piece of kind of how we assess an individual in our profession um, as therapists because we need to know all of the outside factors that has affected their individual experience. Oh, everything's been covered there. I think the only thing that I would add to that is we ask questions specifically about hobbies, special interests. Mm -hmm. what, what gets your attention outside of yourself? And that can Beautiful. lead us into some of the collective questions. Um, just even today, I was talking to a client and I asked about, you know, I asked specifically about hobbies and special interests. And uh, in the hobbies, it was like watching TV, you know, going to the park with the kids, um, reading, doing jewelry making. And I asked about special interests, and there was uh, cooking. There mm -hmm. was uh, helping others with addiction. And while these could be hobbies into themselves, but the, the experience that's described in them comes from a social context. So cooking isn't just about the client. It's about the client and the family. And the helping others very much by just explain ex, by object explanation is about others, and that kind of leads us into our lower in our lower section of 
collective work. Um, but before we get to that, uh, let's you know, talk a little bit more about the separate right in that, um, you know, it, it is very much this almost biological impact. Uh, just as we trying to understand the evolution of, of small animals into more complex animals, you know, what separates a virus from a bacterium, from a mouse, from a human, because that adds back into the existential of why are we here. And I think that's important to remember that as someone begins to understand their own physical world, you know, and I don't mean like the universe and, and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson type of physical world as much as, you know, the, the choices they make, you know, what kind of furniture do they own? You know, what kind of people do they let be in their life? What kind of uh, outward style do they present? You know, do they... Do they dress up for a date or do they dress down for a date? Is it a more comfortable situation or not? Because some of this is also important in understanding their upper right in far as the impact on their individual experience. Um, as with that, I think uh, unless you have something else you'd like to add, I want to move go ahead to the lower left-hand quadrant. Okay. All right, so lower left-hand quadrant is the subject of collective quadrant. Um, in Dr. Foreman's book, we really focus on, uh, I think the, the simple term here is cultural context. Um, this will address uh, family ethics, family morals, uh, maybe church spirituality is as a group experience um, where you can be spiritual capital S in an individual context where it's your relationship with divine. And in like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, have a higher power, whether it's God or a doorknob, have something that holds you accountable, I think that falls in the category of individual capital S experience of religion, where lower left quadrant is about the group effect. So this is the, when you go to church, uh, do you do communion with the group if you're Catholic, or do you only go to church on Easter and Christmas? Do you, and then what kind of experience you have for that? We have seen in research that Group activity has an amazing impact on emotional response. Um, very rarely can somebody go to a football game or a baseball game and have their team winning and not be moved by it. Or go to a, a movie theater where it's got a really strong, popular following on a new movie, and when the audience cheers together, you find yourself wanting to jump in. So this subjective, collective response is directly impacted by being there as well as being with others. So um, some of the questions that Dr. Foreman might ask is, you know, about cultural experience. You know, what kind of culture, what kind of ethic you come from, ethnicity, I'm sorry. Um, how does your family think, what does your family think about this particular item, whether, uh, you know, the most common and most obvious in the media now is, you know, still a lot of gay rights. So you might ask the question about a man coming in who's questioning his sexuality about how does your family or your spiritual beliefs apply to your confusion about whether or not this is right or wrong. So when you have somebody come in, Wesley, and again, we're looking at the overall integral assessment that you're doing, what kind of questions, what kind of things do you really look for when you're assessing the lower left-hand quadrant? Yeah, so again, just to kind of keep everybody uh, in orientation with us. So if we say the upper left that we started with was 
psychological patterns, and we're talking about the upper right being the behavioral patterns. When we talk about this lower left perspective, we're really talking about the shared beliefs and ideals. So collectively in our communities, within our societies, our clans, our leagues, our groups, our families, uh, what is the shared meaning uh, between us? Uh, we're really talking about this we space, where the upper left would be talking about the I space. So when we get two I's together, they make a we. Um, I always thought that was sort of funny. There's that video game, of course, by Nintendo called a Wii, and it's spelled W-I-I. And so um, I always thought it was quite fun to point out to people that it takes two I's to make a Wii. <laughs> so we're really talking about interpersonal dynamics and how that affects our psychology, how it affects our relationships, and how it affects our, our connection to groups. And uh, I'm always interested in people's relationship history. Uh, I'm interested in asking about people's family dynamics, um, particularly relationships to mother, father, uh, siblings, uh, even extended family. And part of the deep lower left work that I do is I'm really quite interested in uh, what was unresolved in the individual in terms of uh, the family relationship because a lot of times this points to a very deep uh, connection to how these people uh, will reveal their deepest gifts. A lot of times that the, the very needs that went most unmet in our lives are the very things that we're being asked to give. So I'm interested in those early dynamics with parents um, and also it's worth noting that we want to talk about people's uh, social roles also, is what identities within the culture are they, are they attached to? Do they seem to affiliate with, um, that might be gender and sexual preferences, uh, that could be uh, affiliations within the culture this or that group or this or that role or this or that title. All these things are part and parcel of someone's deep identity. And of course, it correlates to other quadrants, which will probably tie that up here when we're finished. Um, so in all, I want to know about their relationship values. I want to know what they're identifying with. I want to know from their perspective what are the positive, positive and negatives of their culture? I'm interested in their romantic relationships. I'm interested in their sexual chemistry relationships. And I'm also interested in their relationships that would involve uh, what I call shared evolutionary purpose. And what are the moral issues that they struggle with? Um, and all that tells us something about their value system. So I can't tell you any one specific question I would ask, but I do orient the conversation to those topics um, because there's very rich content in there. And I would have to say that um, not only professionally does this tend to be a blind area, but I think even socially this lower left uh, area, this we space tends to be a blind area of deep investigation. It's, it's some place we don't have much of a vocabulary for. We don't really have the lexicon to have very uh, deep uh, 
inquisitive conversations in this area. And uh, it was the most repressed area that I had to work on. And when I was finally introduced in how to do it, uh, it really expanded my practice and expanded the capability in which I could work deeply with a client. Um, as a for instance, I mentioned I have long, slow conversations with people. That is a building of relationship and taking the time to allow the conversation into the areas that we need to discuss and not just running my agenda and certainly not running the client's agenda. Um, when we do group work, we do a lot of work that we call dyad, uh, which is where we rotate and have partners face-to-face in deep eye contact, um, sharing inquiries back and forth, not in a dialogue fashion, but in a safe space to share what's coming up and then to be received unconditionally uh, and then trade that inquiry back and forth until we move on to the next one. And so that deep connective moment with another person, getting their world, weaving shared reality uh, is a huge component uh, to what we do. I, I have to laugh because uh, I remember doing dyads with you uh, almost 10 years ago. And uh, at the time, when you talked about this lack of lexicon, uh, you referred to it as uh, deep interpersonal speed dating without the romantic connection. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> Remind me to write that down. It is exactly what it's like. It's like deep interpersonal speed dating without the romantic connection. Beautiful. Who said that? You did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant that way. Tells you how. <laughs> So, all right, so the, the lower left, I mean, we, we really kind of hit on that. And, and I want to note the time that it is uh, 1245 local time Arizona. So we've got about 15 minutes left to kind of get into the lower right-hand quadrant and then kind of surmise what we've gone over. Um, so one thing I wanted to note is it kind of came up for me as you're going over these again. I realized uh, when I started thinking about lower right-hand quadrant that in the field of psychotherapy, uh, we tend to specialize, well, okay, so my backtrack, we are capable of doing assessment in all four areas. Uh, we have training generically to do this, and then we kind of specialize in one or two quadrants at a time. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about psychiatry. Psychiatry very much comes out as a, oh, hold on, got a helicopter flying over. Or no, not a helicopter, it is a very low-flying aircraft. I'm near the Air Force Base. I apologize. So psychiatry tends to be ample space so that we can edit out this little interruption. Mm-hmm. Okay, so psychiatry tends to be a focus on um, the individual experience um, because it's, uh, a psychiatrist comes into uh, the mental health realm from a medical standpoint. Um, in Graves and Wilbur's explanation of uh, spiral dynamics, Um, It's very much an orange category, so it's very Mm -hmm. much the individual scientific view of a human being. and and very rational reason, behavioral based. Right. And and that's very, very important to understanding the the change of the human evolution, the human psychology, the evolution of the human psychology, um, in order to assess the perception of problems and how to address it from the more biological component. Because... You know, there are individuals, myself included, I take a medication to help me manage my um, emotional existence because at some point the biochemistry, which I cannot directly control, it is a uh, parasympathetic response, uh, can get overwhelming. 
and it impacts my ability to be reasonable, which is why this reason orange group becomes important. But they don't really pay attention uh, or emphasize the subject, or not the subject, the collective impact. Well, they assess that they're taking it into consideration, um, but they pay attention to upper quadrants, the individual. As a psychotherapist, however, um, I do less with the upper right and lower right due to the fact that my job as a therapist is to work with the individual first and foremost. And so I focus more on the individual um, subjective and, and collective subjective impact. I look at the biological and hand that off to the doctor. I look at the lower right, which we'll get into, which is the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the objective, um, objective collective, okay, which is socioeconomic, which we'll get to a little bit of socioeconomic, which we'll get to in a minute, and I hand that off to either a caseworker, or more correctly, I'll hand it off to a marriage and family therapist or somebody trained in family or group systems. But it also might be covered in social work where social work mm -hmm. looks at the huge impact of the bottom two quadrants. Where my job is to focus on the left side of the quadrants instead of looking mm -hmm. at the whole picture or maybe not even really understanding the whole, the whole picture. So I, just, I wanted to add in you know, what had come up before we get into the lower right hand, right? Is this where we're at now? <laughs> so mm -hmm. lower right hand, um, the lower right quadrant, is the objective collective quadrant. Um, Dr. Foreman uh, suggests in his book that this is the socioeconomic role and status. Um, this is upbringing, types, and systems. Okay? So this is where the, the systems theory comes in that we're taught either as marriage and family therapists or doing couples work. Um, we're taught to come at it from a systems perspective, and it really focuses on this lower right. Um, we talk about the impact of government, employment, politics, school, welfare, foster care, and it's always, it comes back to a form of systems work. Because just like in the upper right, it's objective, it's the biological and factual of the experience, the lower mm -hmm. right hand comes back and says, it's this now cultural objective experience. So what is the systematic issues that play out in this, which may informally actually puts in here that the layout of the home and the neighborhood fall into this category as opposed to the upper right category where I kind of feel it's at. So um, he asked questions about legal issues, health insurance, uh, where the parks are. You know, where's the community property that you can utilize as a resource? So Wesley, again, same thing, same question. What kind of ways do you assess the lower right-hand quadrant or this, sub, or this objective, collective area of somebody's life? Yeah, so the lower right to me is, again, talking about things that are shared. So we're using the word collective. And uh, this to me would be the shared environments, the shared spaces. And the shared system uh, that we all have to navigate and be with each other uh, in. So I think here it's like 
deeply inquiring what's going on in your exterior life. Where are you living? What are the conditions like where that happens? How much freedom do you have for movement? How much space are you allowed yourself? Do you get out into nature? Are you secluded indoors? Um, it could even get down to the, the very micro questions of what type of lighting are you exposed to in a regular way? Um, do you access to clean water and healthy food? Uh, it, it's really sort of getting the, the finger on the pulse of all the environmental factors that are always affecting uh, us in, in, in almost a subconscious way. And then the reverse of that is how do your particular choices and way of life affect those very same systems? So obviously we know there's a reciprocation between person to environment that the environment also therefore acts back on us. So those are the things that I'm, I'm often curious about when I'm working with somebody. And I want to know their relationship to their environments. I want to know their relationship to systems. Um, I want to know their affiliations with all of those different uh, different qualities within those quadrants. So forgive me, I have to uh, slightly transition. Um, I will be working on my sound quality for the moment because I have to start heading back to work. Um, so if I get switched out from my current call. <laughs> okay, perfect. In the time that we have left, uh, and I thank you so much for, for sharing that information, um, we need to kind of give a real brief overview of kind of what we covered. But um, one thing I want to ask, and this is where I find myself tripping up as a therapist, is that, you know, I'm familiar with all four quadrants. I've been working on this type of information for many years. Thanks a lot to your guidance, Wesley. And um, what I find myself doing is I kind of fall into one quadrant or another during a conversation where I kind mm -hmm. of become over-focused in, like, the, the client might tell me that they're having this emotional issue and they're really feeling like this, 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 and this. And I'll kind of forget, not intentionally, but I'll kind of forget how these other areas might play in. Uh, real fast, can you give us um, an idea of what ways or, or how did you manage to get yourself to a point where that becomes less of an issue and you're more capable of moving through the quadrants during a conversation? Yeah, okay, cool. So I think the thing to do, and it'd be also a good way to sum up here as we're coming to the end of our call, um, quadrants to me translate in my mind as perspectives. And if we look at the word perspectives, we've got the word PER, P-E-R, and we've got SPEC, S-P-E-C, and we've got TIS. And if you look at the Latin root of all those words, what you end up having is the lenses that we look at something through. And a perspective is the glasses we put on. It's the lenses that we, that we don to look at a particular phenomena in a particular way. And so when I shift my ideology to, I have these different perspectives that I want to look at uh, through so that I can get an honest and legitimate assessment from at least four basic qualities. Um, 
that is really what kind of liberated me. So it allowed me permission to explore different aspects, different perspectives of a person, of a session, uh, of a diagnosis, of a problem, and also a different perspective on the approaches that I had available to myself um, to, to work with somebody. So it was an excellent way to conceptualize as many different perspectives as possible that I could take. We all have a perspective bias. We all have a favorite area that we tend to, to gravitate to. Um, we, we could make a, a quick thumbnail sketch and you know, say that the, the depth psychology people are going to be more attracted to the upper left, the uh, more neurobiological uh, pharmaceutical approaches are going to be oriented to the upper right. Um, we could certainly say that uh, more sociological perspectives, you mentioned social work earlier, is going to be more dedicated to, to lower right and sometimes lower left uh, approaches. So we all have a, a quadrant or perspective bias, um, but we want to understand that the, the more legitimate perspectives we can take, the more comprehensive, thus the word integral, the more holistic we can look at a problem. And my personal feeling is that that allows us to, to take a more comprehensive view, a more compassionate view, and a more compassionate approach to helping others. Um, all these things are correlated. When, when, when something arises in one perspective, there is a correlative arising in another perspective. And so as we can allow ourselves to sort of uh, integrally cross-train, I think we become more potent, we become more powerful, and uh, we become more, more uh, as a tool of servitude for the people that we're helping. Thank you so much. And uh, we've got about uh, two minutes left before, we have to, before I have to leave <laughs> and end the call. Um, cool. So really, we've covered a lot of information, and I appreciate uh, everybody's time who's either listening or joined our call in, in silence. Um, definitely, you want to appreciate Wesley. Um, I mean, this is this is really his project that um, he's inviting people to join him on, uh, which I've been blessed to to be a part of. And while it sounds like in this call that I'm kind of more of a question facilitator, um, you know, a lot of, I'm asking questions to things I, I really kind of know some answers to but it helps uh, bring about the conversation. We're hoping mm -hmm. that more people will be able to join us in the future. Um, before we close the call, of course, and we want to talk about when the next time um, the next phone call will be, um, by my calendar, that should be on or about, uh, I think, May 13th. Does that sound yeah. right? That does. May 13th. On or about May 13th. So that is the second Friday of May. Uh, again, at 12 o'clock uh, Arizona time, or uh, as long as we're still on Daylight Savings, it'll be about 3 o'clock Eastern. Um, that will also be the beginning of the internship for uh, for the students that are working in my facility. So that's uh, going to be interesting. Um, again, thank you so much for this wonderful overview. Uh, definitely we'll be talking more about uh, some of the ideas that came out of Dr. Foreman's book during the course of our conversations. If you want to know more about Integral Assessment. There is uh, a book by Andre Marquis. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Andre Marquis is another uh, well-established and educated gentleman in the field of uh, integral psychotherapy, and he wrote an entire book specifically to integral assessments. And uh, while I would have loved to have been able to read the whole thing in time for this uh, discussion, uh, some life gets in the way. I mean, 
that's part of <laughs> understanding our own position and perspectives and things. Uh, so again, thank you all very much for taking the time to listen. Um, for those of you uh, who catch this uh, recording prior to uh, Wesley's wonderful, beautiful edits and his musical adaptations, I'm sure, um, thank you for sticking through some of the stranger bits that uh, come with doing a live conversation. And we'll see everybody yeah, back here. Great. And I just want to mention, if anybody has questions that they want to reach out with inquiries, if maybe they could uh, forward those to the Twitter uh, account. Okay, which Twitter account are we having them reach out to? Uh, would it be yours? Or do we need to create? Sorry about that. <laughs> I well, thought we had it created. Well, my, okay, so we, we do have one. I'm going to say we, we have one for Cylogia. So it's at Cylogia on Twitter. So it's uh, P-S-Y-L-O-G-I-A. And feel free to follow. Um, it'll be the, the Psylogia tweets are going to be related to mental health and therapy and psychotherapy and psychiatry. Um, things that, that ring true from an integral perspective. Um, it'll also have updates to uh, phone calls. It'll have updates to events that the Psylogia school is running. Um, we'll get Wesley in there tweeting some things too eventually. Um, but for the most part, you know, that's a good place you can ask questions for upcoming calls. You can ask questions about previous calls, and we'll get you a response. And also, don't forget, Psylogia School does have a Facebook page. Um, so if you go into Facebook.com and search the bar for Psylogia School of Consciousness, you will find it. It has a beautiful uh, composite butterfly picture attached. That's how you know you're in the right place. Okay, and then uh, so... Definitely um, next time we're going to start talking about kind of what kind of interventions might apply as an integral perspective and also in the individual quadrants to kind of attach the more standard, um, the more standard and systematic psychotherapy models into this integral perspective and why certain multimodal, since eclecticism is being outdated, multimodal uh, techniques are very become very important. Um, all right, so if you want to know more about Dr. Foreman's book, again, it's a guide to integral uh, psychotherapy, Dr. Mark Foreman. It's a great book to get started with. If you want to know more about integral theory, Ken Wilber's book um, on integral life practices is the composite work of all of his most poignant theories. It's the most refined. It is multi-author. Um, I do not have that in front of me to tell you all the author's names. Um, and definitely, if you want to know more about spiral dynamics, there's Claire Graves and also Kim Wilber for that, too. Anything you want to add before I end the call? Because I've got to get in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next month. All right. Again, May 13th, 2016. We'll see everybody then. Have Bye. a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, got it. Stop call.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.